we are currently studying the book of Jonah, which is, we know by now, is clearly, clearly much more than a big fish story, right? And so God has been showing us some marvelous truths. And as I said before, it's, it's really a literary masterpiece full of rich in theology as it unfolds every twist and turn from scene to scene We're seeing God working. Well, last week we covered um, chapter 2, verse 10, into the first five verses of chapter 3. So after being swallowed by the fish, God commanded the fish to vomit Jonah up onto shore. And as far as we can guess, it was between five and 600 miles east of Nineveh. So he had quite a walk in a hot desert. It was then that God spoke to him again, saying, rise, arise, and go to Nineveh with a message that I'm going to give you. So Jonah takes off. He doesn't even know what he's going to say until obviously till he gets there or somewhere along that line, but he didn't know. And so as soon as Jonah arrived, he began preaching his message. It was simple. It was short and it was frightening. He says in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. I made a big deal out of this word last week because it's a very, very significant word. I kind of want to just touch on it again this morning because I want it to become part of our vocabulary because I think it has an an amazing picture of what has to happen for us to get saved. We, We think, well, we get saved, we believe, but there's this amazing, magnificent, unbelievable power that has to destroy before we can come to new life. And it's a power you and I can't wrestle with. It's beyond us. And so it's a magnificent word because it really embodies the meaning of this book. This one word really carries the meaning of the book. It's the word kafath, and it's it's a violent word. It's a powerful word. And remember, its root means to destroy. So that's the basic meaning of it means to destroy. And what makes it so significant is that it has this dual meaning. Afath means, and it can be used in a negative sense. And it's used that way to describe the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, where they were overthrown or destroyed by judgment. So in the same way then, Nineveh was about to be overthrown or destroyed by their wickedness and their violence. So there's a parallel there. However, the Hebrew word is also used in a positive way. In these instances, judgment is destroyed or overthrown by God's grace. So it's used both ways throughout the Old Testament. So we face then this dual reality that man can will be overthrown and man will be destroyed if he rejects Christ. Not a popular message today, but nevertheless true. If man doesn't repent and turn toward God, he is going to experience God's wrath. And that needs to be a message that the world knows. This shallow, insignificant, insufficient, soft gospel that's given today is not the true gospel. And so it has to include this idea of judgment. But there's a better option. Man's judgment will be overthrown and destroyed if believers turn to Christ. So either way, there's an overthrowing. Either either way, there's a violent act of God's power. 
that has to be in place in order for anything to change. So in this case, by faith in Christ, judgment is removed. Judgment is overthrown by God's free grace. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Say yes. Yes, that's a beautiful picture. So here's how the Hebrew word then applies to salvation. Sin, Satan, and death are overthrown by the transforming power of the gospel. That's that simple. What the world needs to overthrow the evil is Christ. What the world needs to change, and it will eventually when Christ returns. So overthrown then is an important word that really helps us understand what happens at salvation. Let me give you an example that help us understand from 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So by salvation... By being in Christ, we become new creatures. And that's because the old things have passed away. The old things have to pass away before the new things can come. So what this text is teaching us is at the moment of faith, all the old things were overthrown. The old things were destroyed so that we could become a new creation. So when we came to Christ, all the old things were overthrown. Our guilt was overthrown by God's grace. Therefore, hell was overthrown by God's grace. Our slavery to sin was overthrown by God's grace. Our status as unrighteous and unfavorable towards God was overthrown by the imputation of Christ's righteousness by God's grace. We all have a choice. We can be overthrown or destroyed by God's judgment, or God's judgment can be overthrown and destroyed by the gospel of the good news. Something will be overthrown. Something will be destroyed. Well, the Ninevites had that same choice. Look with me at verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Now, We should be stunned at that. That's a staggering little statement. And by the way, this is really the turning point of the book and the reason for the rest of the book. Remember, Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to receive mercy. Jonah's a justice guy. He wanted to see justice. He wanted to see them destroyed. And from a human standpoint, we can understand why. So this was Jonah's greatest nightmare. It had come to pass. Israel's most greatest and dangerous enemy received God's mercy, and they get saved. Jonah is not pleased. We'll see that in chapter 4. That's exactly what Jonah was afraid of and what caused him such grief. In 4.2, he says, He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. 
So we know that Jonah took off for Tarshish to avoid the possibility that God might not carry through on his judgment. And he didn't. Well, Jonah is very angry. He's doing his job here, but in the back of his mind, he is in complete disagreement with who God is. But in the end, it's God's decreed will, and it had to be fulfilled. So the Ninevites came to saving faith. It says that they believed. And again, that, that ha- that's shocking because that would be, by today's standards, like Vladimir Putin getting saved. Or the Russian army who's killing all the people getting saved. I think that's a, a decent analogy. It would be a shock to the world, wouldn't it? The Ninevites, who were the most wicked idolaters on earth, believed. So understated. This came to faith. It's a miracle. The word believed here is what we call the hifel stem. That's the grammar. That's the relationship to the, to the verb, to the subject. And it, means, and it means that something's causative. Something caused this to happen. It wasn't the Ninevites... They didn't cause it themselves. Here it means that they were convinced or persuaded to believe. So what was it that moved them to faith? Was it Jonah? I bet he was a sweet preacher, don't you? I wonder what his his tone sounded like when he said, you're going to be destroyed. You got to wonder if he got up and said, yeah, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. Because remember, he didn't want to see him saved, so you wonder what his attitude was. It probably wasn't his uh, preaching style. It probably wasn't his personality. And I think, by the way, I think the brevity of this text is intentional. I do believe that he probably spoke more. He probably answered questions. But the brevity here is to bring our attention not to Jonah, not to the messenger, The attention here is given to the fact that it was God's word who moved them, who motivated them, who convinced them, who persuaded them to believe in God. That shouldn't surprise any of us. It's not the messenger. It's not our personality. It's not about our ability to debate. It's not none of those things. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It all has to do with the power of God's word. East Point, do you believe that? Do you believe it rests solely on the power of God's word? Do you believe that we're called to deliver that word? Do you believe that we're not called to be successful? We're called to be faithful. And we will be faithful if we believe in the power of God's word. You see, our success in evangelism isn't because of us. It's our faithfulness to the message of the cross. That is such an important, powerful statement today because my guess is most pastors, most churches really don't believe that because you know if they did, the Word of God would be the priority in the church. And they wouldn't fall into all the shenanigans to try to encourage people to be interested in Christ. They would trust in the word. Listen to Paul's description of his message. He says, and when I came to you, brethren, 
That's the Corinthians. I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Paul tells us here then that his preaching didn't include superiority of speech. In other words, Paul was not concerned to impress his listeners with lofty, eloquent words. He didn't care about polished speeches. He didn't didn't care about that at all, nor did he try to influence them with the futility of human wisdom. 2 Corinthians 10.10 describes what his critics thought of him. He wouldn't have been hired by most pulpit committees. Here's why. His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal appearance was unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Now, historians say that Paul was a little short, bald, squeaky sounding guy. And so when he got up to preach, he wasn't tall and handsome and didn't have this eloquent, powerful voice. Most likely, he was probably short, squeaky. But here's what he had going for him. He didn't try to impress people by his pulpit skills. This is something that pastors have to remember because we see success and we try to emulate that success. Well, this is the way they do it. This is the way they present. They sit on a stool or they stand, they walk around, they do all these things. Pastors look at these things thinking, how do I make my preaching more powerful? Well, Paul tells us here, don't get wrapped up in superiority of speech or in wisdom. So Paul didn't try then to wow his audience. If he didn't, then what was his message like? Look at verse 2. He says, then I determined, this Greek word means he made a deliberate resolution. Paul at some point decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul here made a personal commitment to focus his message solely on the person and work of Christ, the gospel. Paul didn't pretend to know all other kind of things about politics and the world and and all of that stuff. Here's what he did. He stayed away away from trying to manipulate people by all the techniques of of certain kind of uh, preaching or speaking. And he focused on the gospel. That's really all we have to do. We have to be able to give the gospel. And we don't have to be able to answer every single question in the world. We have to get to the gospel. Now, here's what's interesting. That wasn't really easy for Paul. He said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul came to Corinth having been beaten and imprisoned in Philippi, run out of Thessalonica and Berea, and scoffed at in Athens. You know, the reality is, just as the Apostle Paul was an apostle, he was also a man. And there were times where he was afraid. There was times where he was weak. There was times when he probably didn't feel like giving the gospel. There may have been times where he even doubted. We don't know. But sometimes we feel fearful. And it isn't easy. As I mentioned last week, it's not easy to give the gospel. And part of the reason is, is we're, we're walking into enemy territory. We're walking into Satan's domain where he's trying to blind people from the glory of Christ in the gospel. It's war, friends. 
It's war. It's spiritual warfare. It wasn't easy for Paul. And again, he states what what he avoided in verse 4 again. He says, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of the Spirit and of power. Again, Paul resolved himself to stay away from theatrics or techniques in order to manipulate the people's response. In other words, Paul did not try to tweak the gospel to make it more appealing. Instead, he relied on the Holy Spirit. How did he do that? How did he rely on the Holy Spirit? How do we speak in a way that demonstrates the Spirit and of power? How do we do that? Well, the first lesson is, is that we stay away and refuse to embellish the message. We stay away from editing the message or tweaking it to make it a little more satisfying, a little more appealing, a little less offensive. Are you kidding me? We're going to change the gospel and we think we're wise to do that? That's changing God's word. So how do we draw on the Spirit's power? Well, the lesson from Jonah and the Lord is this. If we want true success in evangelism, then draw on the Spirit's power by adhering to the gospel. So simple. Their messages were powerful because they didn't alter them. They didn't bring them down on the level to make them more appealing, more acceptable, less offensive. They trusted in the power of God's word. East Point, do we believe that? The next time you have a chance to talk about Christ, you can put your money where your mouth is. And you can give the gospel in all its fullness, all its transforming power. Remember that the gospel has to begin with the bad news before the good news. If there's no bad news, there's no good news. And good news without the bad news is no news. So it says that the Ninevites believed in God. What do we mean by believing in God? Well, it's much more than simple agreement of the facts about God. A lot of people can believe facts about something but not really embrace something. James 2.19 tells us that even the demons believed in God. They believed he was one. They were, they were theologically accurate that he was one God. And yet they shuddered. So there's a belief in God, my friends, that doesn't rise above demonic faith. There's a belief in God that probably many, many people say they're saved because they believe in, in who God is. They believe in the facts of God. Salvation is much more than that, as we'll see. There's a demonic belief that's not saving belief. But the Ninevites believed their faith was real, and that's demonstrated in the last half of verse 5. It says, And they called a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. So as a result of their faith, they immediately took part in two physical acts of contrition. They fasted 
And then they put on sackcloth. Those were two sort of rituals that symbolized their contrition. Very common in the ancient world, and they expressed grief and humility and penance. So they called a fast. You know what fasting is, right? It's not eating so you can lose weight. Nope, that's not fasting. Fasting is a practice of abstaining from food and drink sometimes for a period of time. And the goal is to focus our attention on God and draw us into a deeper experience. We don't practice it much anymore. We should, really, if we're, if we're trying to, to ask God or to grow closer to God. Fasting is a way of doing that. Along with that, they put on sackcloth. And I found a picture of this of someone covered in sackcloth, and it looks like this. A very, very uncomfortable material. It was rough, and it was made from goat or camel hair. And so they put this sackcloth over them to symbolize sorrow and grief and and submission. So what we see is the Ninevites get saved, and then they immediately participate in these acts of contrition. And they were practiced from every social status or strata, from the greatest to the least. So the entire population then hoped that God might turn from his anger to spare their lives. By the way, histories have proven that revivals start from the bottom up. Very seldom do they ever stop with, start with the elite and move down to low, lower social status. It usually starts at the bottom and works its way up. But the hope is, is that God's word would eventually reach those at the top, right? Well, that's exactly what happens, and we see this in verse 6. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, (laughs) he rose from the throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on ashes. I was laughing because parents, I love to hear little babies, don't you? (laughs) And parents panic. Don't panic, parents. We love you and it's okay. It really is. We love to have kids in here and we love to have babies in here. So anyway, I get a kick out of that when they're whining and crying. So you would be too if you weren't embarrassed. Might be. So once the king then heard about Jonah's message, he responded also in contrition. Now, I think there's something deliberately dramatic about these words, and it's very, very instructional. It gives us a picture of something. It's more detailed than the others, and I think this is fascinating. First of all, notice that the word reached the king. The word reached the king. Again, God's word is what moves us. God's word is what persuades us. God's word is what convinces us to submit to God. And then notice that the king arose from his throne. Think about how that pictures our lives. We hear God's word, and then we get off our throne. It's an incredible picture. The word is pretty common in in the Hebrew. Basically means anytime somebody gets up and goes somewhere, but it takes on very significant meaning here in Jonah. Because every time it's used, it's a response or a lack of response to God's word. 
Jews six times. God told Jonah to arise in chapter 1, verse 2. But in verse 3, he arose and went to Tarshish. And then in verse 6, the commander told Jonah to arise to call on God, which he didn't do. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, God told Jonah again to arise. And then in verse 3, in obedience, he arose and went to Nineveh. So we see this repeated word over and over and over and over again. And what the author is wanting us to see and wanting us to know is that obedience to God's word is necessary and essential. And what happens when we don't obey, we get thrown in the ocean and swallowed by a fish and then puked up. Sort of the picture. So all through this text then, there's this expectation that everyone is to arise in obedience to God. And that's exactly what the king did. Again, the text is very vivid. He arises from his throne, and then what happens in the end? What does he do? He sits in ashes. Coming off his throne, and he sits in ashes. And in between those actions, he takes off his royal robe that covered himself, and then covered himself with sackcloth. Gets up, takes his robe off, puts sackcloth on, and sits in the ashes. Job sat in the ashes, if you remember, while he was scraping his sores. What a picture here. This is leading us to something very, very significant. So everyone then from the greatest to the least was participating in these outward acts of contrition. But in seven, the king takes it to a different level. Notice what he says. He issued a proclamation and it said in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, his other buddies in leadership, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. So the king and his nobles get together and they sign an executive order. Neither man nor animals were to taste anything, couldn't lick a lollipop, they couldn't eat or drink anything, and both were to be covered in sackcloth. So the question naturally arises, why the animals? Animals can't feel sorry for their sin. They can't participate really in acts of contrition, but they do in this instance. Why? Why did the decree include all the animals? Well, I think there's two reasons. First of all, it shows us that as creation goes, there's an interdependence between man and creation. And that includes animals. You think about it, they share in the story of creation. They were part of the very first Salvation of Adam and Eve because one of their skins, one of them were killed and their skin wrapped around Adam and Eve. So they participated in that. They participated in the fall because all of creation is corrupt. And they're going to participate in the recreation when the earth is delivered from its sin. Because we know there's going to be lions and lambs and cobras and all that in the new millennium. 
You think about it in the story of Jonah and the ark, the animals shared with the man the flood. They were saved and delivered from God's wrath along with man. So man then, along with animals, share in creation in the fall and in the restoration of all things. Joel, when he talks about salvation, includes descriptions of animals. But I want to look at Romans 8, 9-22. through 22. It says, For the anxious longing of creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. What does that mean? It means that all of creation is waiting to be fixed. So when man is fixed, creation is fixed. It's tied in. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What hope? That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory and the children of God. By the way, this whole thing about climate control and all of that, it isn't what it should be because creation is under corruption. It's under corruption, and God's going to destroy it anyway. Yes, we should take care of it. We shouldn't litter. Yes, we should be responsible. But saving creation, friends, is not our call. It's worship in the creation and not the creator. God will take care of his creation. We don't have to worry about that. Yes, responsible. I'm not saying that. But look at 22. It says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. So all of creation then, including animals, share creation. It shares the fall. And in the freeing of corruption when Jesus Christ comes back. Animals suffer along with people. By the way, we lost our cat. Dumb creation just goes off. So if you find a black and white cat, send it our way. My wife's upset. Somehow he just disappeared. I know I'm not supposed to use the pulpit for personal pur- purposes, but this is important <laughs> to my wife. <laughs> so forget Facebook. We went out on public. But I thought about that. I thought, you know, the cat just, you know, it's off and maybe hurt. We don't know. Maybe out in the storm last night. We don't know. Sorry, Sonia. But um, animal world suffers just like we do. And so what I think God is showing us is that they're very much a part of this. But I think there's another reason why the animals are included here. And I think it's more direct. I think it can be tied in a little more to the context It seems as though they were included in this picture in order to portray the radical totality of Nineveh's response. In other words, it demonstrates that their their contrition, their submitting to God is incredibly real and very, very complete. It's almost like the king is saying, look, I want everyone and I want everything to participate in these acts because we are facing the wrath of God. So I think it expresses in very real terms the totality, the intention, the sincerity of their their, um, contrition. And I think that's why the animals are pictured along with that. I have no other reason other than those two reasons. But it's meaningful. 
So the contrition included the greatest to the least and even to the beast. Kind of a nice rhyme, actually. The greatest to the least, even the beast. The greatest to the least, even the beast. Oh, never mind. All right. So, so far then, the decree that's been called for were outward acts of contrition. They were visual, visual symbols that people participated in. It was all physical. And they were surrendering in sorrow and grief, but the decree didn't stop there. The king added more. Look at the second part of eight. He says, and let the men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Here's the important thing. The king didn't leave this contrition at a physical level. He ordered that everyone was to cry out to God, cry out with earnestness, earnestness, with sincerity, with intensity. And they were not only to call out to God, they're to turn away from their evil behavior. Now that's significant. They're not just to go through the motions of rituals. He says, yes, those rituals only have meaning if it's really coming from your heart and you want to change. And then in 9, he explains why. He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. It's interesting that the king didn't know for sure, but, but he hoped, he thought for sure, possibly that God might see their sincerity and he might choose to not destroy them. It's the same hope, by the way, that the sea captain had back up in chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, perhaps... Your God will be concerned about us and we will not perish. Listen, friends, true faith doesn't demand that God respond to our requests. True faith does not say, well, if I have strong enough faith, God must respond the way I want him to respond. That is not true faith. Genuine faith in God knows that God has the power to answer and he can answer, but he may not answer. So faith is not the assurance that God is going to answer exactly the way we want. Real faith gives God the freedom to do what he sees best in his infinite wisdom for his infinite glory. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego believed that God was going to rescue them. And then they said, but perhaps he may not. They had faith. That wasn't doubt. That was realistic theology. Giving God the freedom to be who he wants to be. So they left the results up to God in his infinite wisdom. And then that brings us to verse 10. God's response. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared that he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Amazing. God who told them he was going to destroy them, once he saw their contrition, it says that he relented from his plan. And he relented from that plan to overthrow and destroy them. The King James Version is an extremely good version, but if you have the King James today, 
In this verse, you're going to see that it uses the word repented. And that's an unfortunate translation because God doesn't repent. God never changes. And repentance suggests that you were wrong and saw something that changed your mind and you went the other direction. God is omniscient. He sees the beginning and the end. So it's not like God saw something and goes, whoops, I made a mistake. I need to repent of that mistake. That's not the way it should be used here. The Hebrew word here, its origin is from the root that reflects the idea of breathing deeply. So it expresses feelings of sorrow and sadness and compassion. If you have the NIV, I think you have the Hero Bible this morning because it translates this word compassion. And I think that's probably the best word. So what it says here is that God had compassion or he had mercy on the Ninevites when he saw that they had turned from their wicked way. God didn't repent of a bad decision. And the result here is he relented or he changed his mind concerning their judgment. If I had more time, I would elaborate on this, but this troubles people that somehow God changed his mind. And it should trouble us because God never changes his mind. And you say, well, he was going to do something and then he decided to do something else, right? And here's the reason. Because his promise to destroy them was conditional. It was conditional. He said, if you don't change, I will destroy you. If you do, I will destroy my judgment. So really all God is doing here is fulfilling his promise. It's his character. And so God is just simply looking down. He gave him an option. He knew, he knew ultimately what the option would be. And he has option two or option B, and he relents or decides not to bring judgment because they met his condition. He kept his promise. So we're going to stop here because this is such a powerful scene that I've got a lot of application for us this morning. You know, there are times as you study the Bible as you soak in truth over time, which I have the privilege of doing week after week after week, things begin to emerge. Things become sharper and clearer, and it's like sifting for gold. As you sift, the sand falls out, the incidentals fall out, and suddenly you see this gold. It just becomes obvious. The Holy Spirit goes, here, dummy. <laughs> you know, you've been studying this. You don't see but here, this is what this is about. And that's what happened. This text grew, grew larger and larger as to its, as its importance. So about Thursday, it dawned on me that chapter 3 could be one of the greatest texts on evangelism in the entire Bible. We're looking at an awesome passage on evangelism. In fact, I would say that it captures the very heart of the entire Bible. Think about it. It includes all the essential elements of redemption. The Ninevites were wicked sinners, right? Isn't that where it starts? So God sees that. 
And in His mercy, He sends a messenger to give a warning of judgment and a warning of hope if they changed. You got a sinner, God sees it, God sends a messenger. The Ninevites hear Jonah's message, they respond, they believe, and God cancels the plan to destroy them. It's an awesome evangelistic passage. So I called Weingartner. It was a little early in the morning for him, but I texted him anyway, and he answered pretty quick. And I said, hey, have you ever heard in any all of your evangelistic training, have you ever heard this passage used as a tool for evangelists? And he said, I, I haven't. And I said, well, we've got to write one and include it. Because this is an awesome passage on evangelism. And so I'm excited to preach the rest of this because I think you're going to be very, very encouraged. It is, friends, a perfect passage to sit down with somebody to help explain the Word of God and explain the gospel when you're sharing your faith. Now, I don't often do this in the middle of a message, but I want to challenge every one of you to come to some evangelism training, a class on Saturday, June 25th. It's going to be with Aaron Krause. He's with Word of Life. You guys have probably remember him. He was down for Circus Week. Everybody write it down on your paper. No excuses. June 25th. Who's busy that day? Nobody. Now, last time we did this, we had about four or five people of our entire church show up. To an encouragement to this body and to the elders and, and, and for yourselves, would you please try to make this a priority? I have a feeling that a lot of us are, are shy about giving the gospel because we're not confident. We've never done it. I bet a large percentage of us have never really shared the gospel in its fullest. It doesn't make us losers, but I believe that God's going to use us. And so I please, please, please put that down. We'll, we'll remind you from time to time. I may just say it in the middle of a sermon because I have that ability, right? I can do that in the middle of a sermon. So please write that down. We have got to get serious about this. And here's what I want from that. I told Aaron, he's going to be given a message as well. I said, I want this to be practical. People know the gospel generally. Our people know it's about, you know, God's judgment and sinners and by grace through faith alone and all that. We know that. But how do we practically talk it out? And what do we do? So please mark that down. I thought this might be a good time to bring this up. Because I'm looking for, he's an extremely good evangelist, very comfortable. We have got to get comfortable at sharing our faith. And when we do, I think God's going to open the doors. Remember, remember this, that's why we're here. We're here to give the truth to people that are dying. We're here as Christ's ambassadors. And we fail at the very purpose we're here if we shy away and we don't speak up and give the gospel of hope to people we know. So we got to get serious. So please mark that down. Please try to make that a priority. I would be so greatly encouraged if we had most of our body there to hear this. That's not about me. It's ultimately about God. He wants to use us. I can feel it. He wants to use East Point. And he's saying, get your evangelism shoes on, baby. Because I'm going to send you out with feet that are sweet. Remember, Scripture talks about that. So what are we supposed to learn then from this passage, what we've heard? 
What is God trying to teach us? And how should it affect our life? Well, friends, there's one main point that drives this entire text. And we know it because it takes up half of the chapter from the last part of five through verse 10 is the focus of this subject. It is an essential doctrine that tragically is ignored in the modern church. God is showing us that repentance moves God to withdraw his judgment. It's repentance. That's the focus of the last five verses. The emphasis of the end of this chapter. So what is repentance? Its basic meaning is to change one's mind. That's an okay definition. That's what all the theology books basically say it is. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this at the, at the risk of selling prideful against all those other theology books. That's not a good definition of repentance. It's not good enough. And the reason is it doesn't capture the entire range of meaning of what it means to repent. It's a word we don't hear today, right? We don't hear repentance very much. Probably if we heard most of the gospel presentations, it's probably not in them. It's probably been removed. So let me define it this way then. Repentance is a godly sorrow for one's guilt, therefore a turning to Christ for mercy with the result of a changed life. That, I think, does the definition justice. There are three parts. First of all, it involves a recognition of one's guilt for sin. That's where repentance begins, with a deep sorrow of our sin. Secondly, repentance includes a desire to seek God for His mercy and forgiveness. So it starts with recognizing that we have offended God. It starts, my friends, with sin. It starts by recognizing what sin is. It starts by recognizing that we have committed treason against God. Nobody is good in that respect. Nobody has done righteous in that respect. We are dead in our sin, and we're guilty of that. And then when we recognize that, repentance involves trying to fix that by turning to God. And third, true repentance results in changed lives. You see, we don't work to get saved, but salvation must result in works. This is a very, very important doctrine that is missing today. And I think, personally, that's why we have so many false converts today. Is because a shallow, insufficient gospel does not drive people to repentance. All it does is offer them knowledge of who God is and that He's going to make your life happier. That is not the gospel. The word repent or the word repentance... They're used 34 times in the Old Testament, 112 times in the New Testament, 146 times we're told to repent. So it's an essential doctrine, and yet, like I said, it's pretty much disappeared. And it's, and it's interesting, if the devil would want to destroy the gospel, all he'd have to do is eliminate the idea of repentance. 
because it makes salvation easy. All I got to do is repeat a prayer and believe that God's going to make every day Friday. So the idea of repentance and change and the understanding of guilt, I think, has been removed as a satanic strategy. And again, the fallout of that is a massive amount of false conversions. If there's no repentance, listen carefully, please. If there's no repentance, there's no work of the Holy Spirit. And if there's no work of the Holy Spirit, there's no drawing of God. And if there's no drawing of God, there's no desire to be saved. It all fits together. Let me also say that repentance, as I looked at the word throughout the New Testament in particular, it's used in evangelistic contexts. Most of the time, it's not used for our normal daily sins where we confess our sin and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Repentance is primarily used exclusively in salvation contexts. Now, the importance of our text in Jonah is that it illustrates what repentance is. It's one thing to define it, to change of mind, but it's another thing and more helpful to see what it actually looks like. So all the outward physical acts of the Ninevites, as well as the animals, illustrate what repentance is. It illustrates it in fasting and putting on sackcloth and a king arising from his throne and laying aside his robe and sitting in ashes. All those are outward symbols that picture the response of those who are being truly drawn by God himself. When the word of God penetrates our heart, the response is sincere grief over our sin. So we wonder, have I grieved over my sin? Did I grieve over my sin? When I heard the gospel, was it a gospel of happiness? Was it a gospel that God would make everything happy? Or was it a gospel that took you to your knees recognizing you had no hope unless God would rescue you? We've lost the gospel in the, in the prosperity gospel. And Satan has done a good job of eliminating the key element is repentance. And the only reason you'd want to repent is that you recognize through the illuminating power of the Spirit that we're sinners. It has to start, friends, with the fact that we're sinners or we don't have a gospel. And that's not easy. It's uncomfortable. Who wants to tell people they're horrible? Well, sometimes that feels good, but that's just when we're angry. <laughs> It's hard to look at somebody and say, you're under God's wrath, my friend. You think you're a good person, and on a human level you are, but you're not at a spiritual level. You, God does not look favorably at you. You're under His wrath. Spiritually speaking, you deserve hell. That's hard, but that's true. And until we get that right, we're not going to give a correct gospel. I'm not saying it's easy. It's awful. It's hard to do. But if we love Christ and we want to see people come to Him, we've got to do it the way God says do it. And tweaking it doesn't help. It may save our reputation, but it won't save them. 
So the gospel reveals to us, and when it does, it reveals our guilt. And if that happens, God's wrath can be overthrown. The gospel produces hope. It reveals to us that the only hope we have in escaping God's judgment is mercy. And in that grace and mercy, He forgives us. Forgives us of what? For sinning against Him. (laughs) It's got to be central. See, we have a choice. Either ignore the pains of guilt or ignore pointing out guilt or avoiding that or doing something about it. As God moves in our heart, we feel this longing to change. We feel this this weight, this reality of our sin. And we want to change from what we are to what we want to be. There's There's a turning. So we lay our lives before God with the hope that He'll forgive us and deliver us from destruction. There is no salvation from being saved from anything else. So by God's free grace, we believe. And that makes us a new creation. And the result of that new creation, friends, listen, is a changed life, a different kind of behavior, a reality of of what sin is. We feel that. We recognize that. We want to change. Our our change, our behavior begins to, to go in a new direction. We begin to like church. We begin to like His Word. We begin to like God's people. Things change. If there's repentance, not perfectly, you know, we're like the stock market, right? Right? We're always like that. Let me give you a warning as we talk about this. I have experienced this personally. That some would say that what I am preaching is heresy. They would say that I'm giving a false gospel because I'm adding works to faith. I had one of our leaders one time sit right here. I'd give a message like this, and they promoted, I think it was on Facebook maybe, that I had given the gospel falsely 26 times in a sermon. Just to let you know, what we're dealing with here is is pretty well widely accepted. If that's true, that adding works, that that repentance adds works to faith, then the prophets were wrong, Jesus was wrong, and the apostles were wrong. They all gave false gospels. That is not true. Listen, to be antagonistic against repentance is to be in lockstep with the devil. Faith and repentance are not two separate acts. They're two sides of the same coin. I call it, I think it's okay, I've never heard anybody else say it, I think it's okay, repentant faith. It's a repentant faith. It's a faith that wants to change. It's a faith that recognizes our guilt and that God is the only answer to that guilt. True faith contains the attitude of repentance. I want to show you just some verses to back this up. The very first evangelistic message was Matthew, and it was by in Matthew, and it was by John the Baptist. The very first thing he says is repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, let me ask you, is that a false gospel? No, of course not. Often the word repent 
and faith are synonyms. They both can be used for the same thing. When people, when the Bible says have faith, it doesn't mean just an intellectual agreement. It, ha- it means to have faith and understanding that you're a sinner and God is the only hope. Jesus preached repentance. Matthew 4.17, for that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If that's a false gospel, I'm right with Jesus. See how people can get twisted on something? Please be careful what you read. I've seen it over and over and over again. People aren't discerning. They get into these prophets and these teachers and they take them down a path that would ignore this truth, this clear truth that that's a false gospel to preach repentance. How does somebody get there? They're reading wrong stuff, so be careful. Please be careful. It's a trap. Jesus tells us that even the Ninevites repented. He says the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I was recently given a book on Jonah from a real reputable pastor. And he said that the, that, that the Ninevites didn't get saved. And I was telling Sonia, so that's impossible because Jesus uses this text condemning the Pharisees at the time that they haven't repented like the Ninevites repented. Now, if the Ninevites didn't repent and get saved, what's the point? He just missed it. It's okay. We all miss it. Nobody's perfect. Peter also preached repentance in 2.38. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is, because of the forgiveness of your sins. So what did they need to repent of? Well, people, Peter was exhorting them, those who rejected Christ, to turn to Him for the forgiveness of their sins. You see, repentance is a U-turn. We're going one direction, and the Scripture says, no, God's back here. You've got to do a U-turn. It's a U-turn, a turning from sin to the solution of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason is out of conviction of sin. Peter is calling people to do a U-turn from their sinful ways and turn to Christ. It is not adding works to faith. It is part of a Holy Spirit illuminated faith that at the same time exposes sin and gives the purpose and the hope of changing that in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not two separate things. And we've done an incredible damage to the gospel by separating that out. It's demonic. Repentance is essential for our sins to be forgiven. Acts 3.19 Therefore repent and return. Notice, so that your sins may be wiped away. In other words, to have our sins wiped away, we have to repent. Notice that we're to return. Return to what? Return back to the God because of our fall. He says, I want you back. I created you not to be fallen. I created you to be fellowship with me. And by the way, that's how we're refreshed in the presence of the Lord. Look at eleven eighteen in Acts. Very important verse. 
And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Notice three things. First of all, again, they heard God's word. People have to hear God's word. Secondly, it's repentance that leads to life. Repentance leads to eternal life. And third, this is a shocker for people. Repentance must be granted by God. By the way, that's something that we can pray for for people is that God would grant them repentance. Listen, friends, I, no one can repent, nor can anyone want to repent unless God grants it. It's the drawing power of the Spirit. Repentance is just as much a gift as faith. Well, I have more to share, but we're running out of time, and so I want to leave you with one essential truth, and that is this. Belief in God will not save unless it includes repentance. I know that is a shocking statement, but I think it's supported very clearly in Scripture. Belief in God alone will not save unless it includes repentance. The only valid way that God will ever grant forgiveness and only one reason and one reason only. And that is we're desiring to turn away from our sin to Christ. Remorse and sorrow for sin and the guilt that that brings is the only motive that God will accept when we turn to him. If we're looking to him to make our happy life happy and wealthy and all that stuff, that is not the reason that God grants salvation. He says, you must recognize your sin and you must want to turn from that sin and you must believe in me that I'm the one that can make that change. Then he grants salvation. So without repentant faith, no one will be granted eternal life. Otherwise, we have false conversions. Have you repented? Have you recognized the weight of your guilt? Have you recognized there's no way out other than the casting that guilt on Christ and recognizing that you have to change your life and recognizing that the only hope to do that is to put your faith in him? Repentance, my friends, is everything. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for bringing out a truth from this passage that is so, so, so important. God, it astonishes me how something can disappear from the evangelical world and it not know it. Lord, I believe we see through this strategy of the devil to remove the bad from the gospel removes the reason for responding to grace. Removing the, the tough mercies of God who says he's going to judge because we're sinners. To remove that makes the gospel so easy, but it makes it insignificant. And so thank you for revealing to us this morning the importance of repentance. And I pray for all those here today and those watching on live stream 
that if they haven't really repented and recognized their sin, that today would be the day. And they would look to you, they'd do a U-turn, they would look to you and want to forsake that life to be cleansed and purified by the gospel of grace. Lord, thank you for your desire to save the worst of the worst and the power of your word to transform a heart that murders and threatens and is awful and wicked. How your power in your word through the Holy Spirit can change a life. Father, we can't do that. But we want to participate in it. We want to be deliverers of that message. So help us be equipped. Help us to be confident. Help us to have a zeal to be a part of the only solution that's going to fix anybody in this world. And that's the gospel. May we not compromise it. May we not tweak it. It doesn't need tweaking. It's perfect. And it'll accomplish your will according to your will. In Christ's name we pray.